Chainsaw Mystery. I blame the, the spooky Zoom lady. Mm. No, well, I mean, it's probably my fault. My phone has not worked real well or correctly since I dropped it in the toilet over Christmas. Yeah, that'll, that'll cause some problems. Yeah, so mm, now things just don't. Everything works, and it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong, but at the same time, it just doesn't work as well as it used to. It's very odd. Although, kudos for my not waterproof phone still working yeah. pretty much at all. In the old, in the, in the the old days, dropping the toilet was the instant death sentence. Yep, that was... But now they waterproof shit. Insta-death. Now you can take your phone for your bathtub selfies. Nice. Well, everyone. <laughs> Thank Christ. Uh, welcome to Chainsaw History. This is the show where my sister and I throw our middle fingers at beloved figures in history. Boo! And you can find us and support what we do by visiting ChainsawHistory.com. I'm your host, Jamie Chambers, and this is my sister, Bambi. Hello. And we are a comedy history podcast. I am not a historian, just a guy with a potty mouth and a library card. I'm, I'm, I'm here for the ride. At least today I am. And I have the world's most annoying dog. Stop it. He is just making noise because he can in this yes. big echoey room where the mics will 100% pick it all up. So, yeah. If you could hear a kathunk every once in a while. If you hear weird noises or little a cartoon spring noise, that's because the dog is just fucking around in the background or jumping into my lap. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> to, let's jump into it. Now, today's subject was a footnote in a previous episode. He was a guy we mentioned briefly and then completely forgot about, or at least you might have. I ended up, he ended up becoming a brain worm that just burrowed and I couldn't let it go until I learned more about him and then... I did all that research, so I kind of had to make an episode about it to justify reading <laughs> way too much. I, I feel that, actually, because I have, I too have that, and you get scripts now. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And that is a hint of future stuff for people who do back us on Patreon. Now, our subject today was an accomplished author who conquered more than one style. And back in the 80s, when we were little kids in grade school, his most famous book was really kind of pushed into classrooms. Um, because it was a very, like, especially for the 80s in this era of Reagan patriotism, it was this very kind of American story that made you feel good, and even kind of softened, like, even though it acknowledged problems between white people and Native Americans, it still kind of made it go down with a spoonful of sugar, because it's still this very sweet story. Um, it's very Dances with Wolves-like in that way. Ish, yeah, the values of different cultures. Well, Dances with Wolves was a lot more directly critical of America and way more pro uh, the Native American side, where, as the book we're about to talk about, it's a little bit different. And since we've been through this all before, it's ridiculous to ask you, but um, we're, so I already know you did not read the book The Education of Little Tree. No, I did, however, sleep through the movie a couple times. Yeah, I mean, like... I don't think I watched it. Who among us did not instantly lay their head down the moment the VCR cart came into the classroom and the teacher went out? Yeah, I'm telling you, I, I think there was... it was, And I'm, I'm remembering it now vividly because we talked about it earlier. But yeah, I was in summer school. And they were like, we're going to make you watch oh. this long, boring-ass movie. And then because it's summer school, I'm going to make you take a quiz. Ha, ha, ha. Well, if it makes you feel any better, my really expensive college and education, <laughs> my, my horrendously expensive college education that I'm still paying off to this day, um, 
I had a 400 level World War II history class taught by a professor who just put on videos from the History Channel and then went back to his office to work on his next book. He and this is a guy who was like a renowned expert on the Pacific uh, theater of World War II, and I was really looking forward to ha hearing his lectures. He didn't give a goddamn one. Nice. And instead, we watched History Channel, and then the students gave presentations. So we had to take this. We taught the class along with the fucking History Channel before it became all ancient aliens and stuff. Back um, when it taught actual history. I missed the History Channel when it just showed random, like, documentaries. Yeah, remember, and we just instantly... It was it, great. We just instantly revealed that we're in our 40s <laughs> because the History Channel has not been that in a really long time. That's fine. So, in 1976, The Education of Little Tree was published as a non-fiction memoir by Forrest Carter, who was previously known for westerns such as The Outlaw Josie Wales, uh, a movie our dad liked quite a bit. Uh, that was because, yeah, like I said, the he wrote the book that was made into the movie, um, The Outlaw Josie Wales, directed by and starring Clint Eastwood. It's the autobiography of a man looking back in his early life, when his parents died in the late 1920s, and he went to live with his Cherokee grandparents in the Appalachian Mountains. So, the young boy learns to love and appreciate his grandparents uh, and, the, and the native ways of life and appreciation of nature and... So he's getting all this, like, this. that's the education of Little Tree. The other side of the education of Little Tree is where he is forced into a residential school, which uh, for it's terrible for listeners who don't know, yeah, those are places where, uh, like, the United States and Canada liked to, uh, it was an attempt at ethnic cleansing uh, to kind of culturally whitewash Native Americans by taking their children and raising them in white society. You know, like, most of the time they would even force the children to take different names. And now we just call it public school, but at least they're not <laughs> murdered there. Yeah, and it's everybody. Whereas this case, it was specifically <laughs> Native American children, guys. and it was there. That was the end goal. And the other nightmare is that every once in a while, we archaeologists discover mass graves those next to these places. Right. No, they they were horrific. Um, yeah, look into that. Talk about another rabbit hole you can go down to if you want to give yourself nightmares. The good news is Little Tree, however, was rescued by an uncle who snatched him out of that place and brought him back to his grandparents, where he stayed with them a few more years until you know they were already old and they, they passed away. But the lessons that they had taught him see him through to adulthood. Uh, so it's a very American, very heartwarming tale. And, and it actually is a bit critical of the American government, uh, white culture, and Christianity. There's a whole kind of bit about how they attended church but has serious problem with what people did uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, I All have fair. a problem. That, that's completely fair, because I, too, have a problem with with a lot, with a whole lot of things that have been done in the name of Jesus Christ. Who, yeah. by the way, was a cool dude. He was uh, very chill and would not have approved of any of these atrocities. Yeah, more people should actually just listen to the stuff he said. I mean, even though his his like even if you group don't, of dudes was a bunch of dicks too. Yeah, even if you don't believe, if you specifically go by what Jesus said in the New Testament, it's not it's the all, worst. Yeah, it's it's not the worst it's all stuff. fine. So uh, the educational little tree went on to much success even after the death of its author, coming in waves and even hit number one in the nonfiction section of the New York Times Book Review in '91, thanks to the power of Oprah Winfrey. And low key bad guy Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. <laughs> Or next president of the United States. Who knows? 
Oh my god, I would actually back that. Isn't that scary? That was I talked about a while back, so but she oh shot it down, thankfully. Uh, but She's like, no, I said I wanted to be super rich and famous. <laughs> and still incredibly powerful. And probably more powerful this way. <laughs> she doesn't know her power. Well, I, I know. And if she, and then, even, but even if Oprah Winfrey can take a step back and be like, God, no, I don't need to be president, then at least good for you, Oprah Winfrey. You still have something on Donald Trump. Golf claps. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, I saw the power of Oprah when I was in college and worked at the mall bookstore. Every time Oprah mentioned a book or had it on her book club, instantly it was just gone. We had a little stand where we just put all of the Oprah recommended shit and it would just, all the wine moms would pour in and grab it every week. And, you know, so absolutely. So, you know, when, when I was 16, this book hit the New York Times uh, number one uh, just because of Oprah's recommendation. You know, we're she talking probably didn't know about... <laughs> Any of the stuff other than this bullshit. Oh, we're going to go into it. Let's, let's do let's it. Let's do it. So I was talking about how he actually died just a few years after uh, The Education of Little Tree was published. And the death of Forrest Carter has a few things in common with the, the passing of our own dad. Uh, he died of his first and only heart attack, and he had two funerals. Which, for anyone who has not had to attend their parents' funeral twice, not yeah. highly recommended. Don't do that to not my Not my... My favorite time ever. That's a horrible story we will save for another day. <laughs> oh, but uh, but here's the story of Forrest Carter's two funerals. Uh, he passed away in 1979. He was only in his early 50s. So he died young. Only a few years after his most successful and beloved work. He was well-liked in Abilene, Texas, where he lived at the time, and the whole town mourned his unexpected passing. His body was returned to his original home in Alabama, and the family welcomed a crowd of admirers and friends from the publishing world in New York and entertainment figures from Southern California who joined his wife and children at a graveside service. Then, a few hours later, the family returned to the cemetery for a second, smaller, and entirely private service that matched the name on the headstone that eventually was placed at his grave that puzzled some people. Because uh, the, the friends back at Texas, the fans of his books, were all deeply confused because the name on the grave was one they'd never heard before. Asa Earl Carter. So here's the twist. You're familiar with at least one thing Carter wrote. Back in 1962, he wrote the inaugural address for the incoming governor of Alabama. And you might remember these lines delivered to a roaring applause. Today, I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to my people. It is very appropriate that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom as have our generation of forebears before us done time and again down through history. Let us rise to the call of freedom-loving blood that is in us and send our answer to the tyranny that clanks its chains upon the South. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Chris? That was written by the same guy who wrote The Education of Little Tree. You see... There was no Forrest Carter. There was no Little Tree. 
In fact, Asa Carter was just as white as you and me, and his Cherokee heritage was complete horseshit. He was, in fact, a Ku Klux Klan organizer and rabid defender of segregation. He was a right-wing radio personality decades before Rush Limbaugh. And he was a politician so racist that George Wallace disassociated himself with him. Well, you know, he apparently, I mean, this guy has apparently disassociated with himself. Oh, yeah. And so more, there's that. More than once. So <laughs> when his early ventures failed, he moved to Texas and reinvented himself as a kindly cowboy writer of Native American ancestry, Forrest Littletree Carter. So... A look at his life is a testament to just how much bullshit people are likely to swallow if they tell a good story. And we're about to get into it, but first let's acknowledge our sources. Um, now, I did a lot of personal research on this, so I like pulled up dozens of newspaper articles. Um, I actually was using, uh, still using those Ancestry.com tools to look up records on people. I looked up military service records. Uh, book reviews. So I was like digging. I, I did a lot more personal research rather than just reading books this time. But I did watch a good documentary called The Reconstruction of Asa Carter, which is publicly available on YouTube. So you can just search for that title and you'll pop right up. Uh, I also got more information on Carter's early life in the book uh, titled But for Birmingham, The Local and National Movements in the Civil Rights Struggle by Glenn T. Eskew. Um, that's a very academic uh, book, like getting into the weeds. Like you have to be more of a history nerd to truly appreciate that one because it's heavily sourced less interesting writing but more like this is the shit that happened these are the people involved i mean i still found it fascinating but it's definitely not for the everyday casual reader so i'll put these and other sources in the show notes that you can find on chainsawhistory.com so you ready to go back to mid 20th century alabama no where our people are from <laughs> Not particularly, but here we are. You're going to hate me so much. Every time I think I get out of Alabama, I just get dragged right back in. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. I'm a terrible brother. All right. Asa Earl Carter entered the world on September 4th, 1925 in Oxford, Alabama, which is near Anniston. Kind of central-ish, northeast-ish Alabama. And he was the second of four children, which instantly contradicts his story about being an only child. And uh, also where he claimed to also be an orphan-only child, uh, both his parents uh, outlived him. Or no, I think his father died just a couple years before him. His mother outlived him like 20 years and died. She lived nearly as long as Betty White. So Betty White, who so lived just, we to almost be 100. Yeah. R.I.P. Uh, I just watched, uh, completely off topic, but uh, on the... Her like team that she worked with posted the video she'd pre-recorded for her hundredth birthday to to thank everyone and raise money for her animal charities. I was just like, oh! And then all those magazines yeah. that came out that that had already been printed celebrating her hundredth birthday. It's like, oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, no, uh, I feel like twenty twenty one had to get one last little knife twist in before oh, but we're, we're already dipping. rushing into celebrity death in 2022 you know so well let me this. tell you something it's like remember in 2016 when like celebrity deaths were like really sad and they meant a lot to us such good times now we're like <laughs> making meatloaf memes two hours after the guy died that's just where we are it's how we deal with our pain all right uh so Back to Asa Carter, we don't know a lot about his early life, uh, but we can definitely say he did not move to the Tennessee mountains to learn the ways of the Cherokee. Uh, he actually grew up on a dairy farm, probably milking cows and doing other uh, menial labor, shoveling manure, you know, cow farm 
stuff. Wow. And he graduated from Calhoun County High School in 1943. According to uh, Dan Carter, no relation, of the New York Times, quote, the senior class prophet predicted he would return to Calhoun County as a famous movie star, handsome, energetic, ambitious, always the actor. His classmates had known that Asa Carter would do whatever he had to escape this sleepy little town of Oxford, unquote. Well, who knew that in not an actor, but a writer, eventually. And, you know, before that, radio personality. So, you know, they were at least warm. Now, after school, he immediately entered the United States Navy, being as how there was a whole World War II happening. I found his name on the Navy muster rolls and saw that he served in the Pacific and was involved in the Battle of Lake Gulf, which was like the largest naval battle in the whole war, and the invasion of Okinawa. But otherwise, his military career seems unremarkable. No, uh, no, like, he was just served out his term, wasn't, you know, dishonorably discharged. Like many others, he just served, period. Yep. He was Millions like, of other people did the same thing. He survived World War II. Yeah. After the war, he re reunited with his high school sweetheart. I found the marriage license online for Asa Carter to India Walker on February 22nd, 1947. So he was 21 years old and listed his occupation as the bottling business, and both claimed to be residents of Tallahassee, Florida. As far as I know, they didn't actually move to Florida till later, so I don't know what that was about. Um, I will say this about him. There are slightly less rumors about him cheating on his wife than George Wallace or the other kind of figures from this point in history. So I guess that's something. Uh, they did remain married for his entire life, even though they did have a period of separation, at least one. I did get the idea that there was certain difficulties in their marriage uh, that weren't necessarily related to cheating. Well, you know, everyone has difficulties in their marriage, and hmm. sometimes it doesn't have anything related to cheating. And apparently this guy's an asshole. But he didn't kill her, yeah. so... Yeah. You know, no, no, she outlived him like, by quite a lot. <laughs> she didn't murder him like George Wallace did to Lurlane, yeah, poor that, Lurlane. Yeah, that was one of the biggest surprises I've ever gotten when I was researching was just that horror show. Um, so, when they were newlyweds, Asa used the GI Bill to study journalism for a year at the University of Colorado, boning up on those writing skills that would serve him well for the rest of his life. Uh, and then at Denver, he got a job as a radio announcer, and he found he really enjoyed being behind a microphone. Hello, listeners. And he, um, enjoyed having an audience to listen to his ideas. He bounced around. <laughs> That's my job! <laughs> He bounced around from several radio jobs before returning to Birmingham in 1953 and landing a job at AM850, W-I-L-D. It was wild, y'all. And it was during this time he established his first new identity, Ace Carter, a guy who was too racist for 1950s Alabama. Oh my god, Ace Carter would be a great name for a porn star. Oh, if you saw pictures of this guy, how do you feel about that? Well, no, I don't feel good about any of it. I'm just saying. From a girl whose name is, is Bambi, I, I, can, I can spot it. <laughs> now, the comparisons between Asa Carter and George Wallace are natural, especially since the two worked together for a little while. Um, but my study of both men gives me the impression that George Wallace, as per, we, we talked about this in his episode, I don't think he ever really held racial hatred like deep in his heart. Uh, he just used it for political advantage. It was an expedient, and whatever racism he did had, he was happy to hide it in order to like win votes and, and just go the way the wind was blowing. Is that less gross? I don't know. Or more gross? That's the question to ask yourself at the end of this story. Because uh, Carter seems like a true believer. Like, Wallace, 
he did the thing like, you know, his big announcement that he was done being a racist was when he crowned that, um, that young black woman, uh, beauty queen. He kissed her on the cheek and like put his arm around her and made it clear he was not at all revolted by this beautiful, you know, young woman. See, I can't be racist. And that's not how anything works. No. Um, so listen to the highlights of Asa Carter's early career and see if you agree. So here he is, racist personality uh, on Radio WILD uh, that first went on the air in 1953. And in less than a year, he was sponsored by a group called ASRA, ASRA, and his program was carried by at least 20 radio stations all over Alabama. And if you Google ASRA today, you'll likely find the American Society of Regional Anesthesia. But back in the day, it was something else, the American States Rights Association. And I can see you twitch. I know. <laughs> Well, anytime anyone says the word state rights, there's nothing good that comes after that. Yeah. Always no. ask the question. States' rights to do what exactly? And it's usually horrible. Yeah. Like, you know, they want to have the state right to lower the age of consent. Or suppress certain groups of people from, you know, voting. Yeah, no, none of it's good. It's, it's all... Regressive it's, taxes, you know, just shitty stuff. It starts bad and goes downhill. So, and as you might have guessed, ASRA was an anti-integration organization founded in the 1950s to combat groups in Birmingham attempting to weaken segregation laws. So, some 600 people attended their very first meeting and they claimed to have over 5,000 members on their mailing list. They not only sponsored the Ace Carter Show, they hired him to handle ASRA's public relations. So, in 1955, the group published a lovely little book titled the race problem from the standpoint of one who is concerned about the evils of miscegenation. Authored by racist and dumb biologist W.C. George. Now, for any of you listeners out there who haven't heard the word, miscegenation is a fancy word for a mixed race relationship. And sometimes you learn something new every day, and sometimes that something sucks. Yeah. Uh, my vocabulary has been destroyed by reading about horrible people, but I don't... Ex that's not a I word. want to instantly forget this word. Good Thank people you. shouldn't know that word. Unless they've gone down the, the, the same corners that others have, or have sadly uh, had racism affect them. So, anywho, Azra and Ace Carter didn't limit their hate only to African Americans. Both were also intensely and vocally anti-Semitic, and were mixed it all together with the ongoing Red Scare. Quoting from Dan Carter again, this time from a different book uh, called Rewriting the South. Quote, Carter warned his listeners that the Birmingham chapter of the National Conference of Christians and Jews was a tool of the Communist Party, manipulated by Jews who had duped ignorant Christians into supporting their secret plan to dilute the racial purity of the South. Unquote. I have no words for how much I hated that. I'm shocked by how much I hated, and I expected to. Quoting again from the same book, they quote, believe that the American Christian civilization was on the ropes because of the machinations of the Christ-killer Jews. New York Jews put up the funds for the Russian Revolution, and in the years since 1918, they had joined hands with the communists and refined their plans to undermine white Christian civilization. Their tools were many, but their main weapon was the promotion of integration. Unquote. <laughs> See, you might remember... Uh, All I have. ...that back in the very early 20th century, there was a lovely um, fake document 
published in Russia called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. I do. I know this horrifically fucking, you know, and I'm really surprised about how often it comes up. Well, it is the it is the great granddaddy of all modern of all conspiracy thought. Conspiracy theories plus fucking just racism. So to to give the listeners just a quick idea of this and how it's spilled into what we're talking about now, it's this idea that um, that Jewish bankers uh, have used their money uh, accumulated from all over the world and basically have a secret society. Uh, what we you know now be the billionaire secret Jewish billionaires controlling the world and manipulating governments and doing everything in order to uh, create the rise of of communism and to wipe out you know all world governments and destroy capitalism. So every time you hear like George Soros is funding Black Lives Matter, that's literally a direct descendant of of this horrible conspiracy but, theory. But, but all the billionaires are fucking white dudes with the exception of oil barons. Yeah, but you know, and here's the thing. There, I mean, is there a truth that there are a lot of rich Jewish bankers? Yes, but there is a historical reason for this because in medieval Europe, Christians weren't allowed to charge interest when they loaned people money. It was a, literally considered a sin. So the Jewish communities who did not have that particular rule in their religion did. So they, by de facto, became the banking services, but then also were hated for doing the thing that was needed when to loan people money and provide credit for businesses and shit. Like, yeah, and so they, they made money off of this, this thing, this need that they filled, but then, you know, got nothing but racism and hatred and a holocaust. So getting back to this, so right now there's the current version of this in our story is the idea that these that these secret cabal of, of rich Jewish people um, were are trying to take down Christian civilization? And one of the ways they're going to do it is by by letting white and black society mix and and creating just a mongrel race. Uh, you know, the 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 pure superiority of the Aryans uh, wiped out forever by mixing with Africans. So it's just it is it's just gross and and awful. I mean it's like it mixes multiple levels of, of racism altogether and you know and just that usual, you know, capitalist, you know, fear of anything uh, related to socialism or communism. And hey, look over their tactics. Mhm. Don't look at the bullshit we're up to. However, even for 1950s Alabama, this was a lot See, the Holocaust was a very recent memory in the 1950s, and a lot of Alabamians were kind of uncomfortable with all this anti-Semitism, even if they were totally fine with the rants against communism and people of color. They're like, wait a second. This- we, these people were literally almost wiped yeah. off. The Six earth. million people were killed just in the decade before. So that's like, that was a bridge too far for most, for even like mainstream segregationists who weren't like hateful, but they were just like, the status quo is just fine because I'm doing fine and I don't have to pay much attention to the people living on the crappy side of town. Consequently, Ace went to war on public radio with an organization called the National Conference for Christians and Jews. And this was a multi-faith organization that sprung up uh, after World War II. That was the idea was to promote peace and tolerance and say, you know, it's fine for Catholics, Protestants, and Jews to all get along, and not only that, and to try to overcome harmful stereotypes about all of the above. So this is even though. Um, so on one hand, it's a very nice thing. Like, hey, let's, it's unity. We don't have to hate each other for our religious differences. So that's a good thing. Even though, once again, this is that's all it is. This has no racial component. It does not open itself to other religions beyond the three we just mentioned. And uh, but even still, 
fuck these guys, says Asa Carter. That's, we cannot have this mixing with the Jews. So, uh, the NCCJ promoted an unofficial event that was celebrated for decades and has kind of fallen out in our lifetime. But it was called, known as National Brotherhood Week. And even though it was only about religious tolerance, if you were a Catholic, Protestant, or Jew, that was too much for him. This was all part of the commie plot to destroy America. You can't have people getting along with... With other people? With the Jews. And it's always in quotes with the capital, you know. So, the president of the Alabama chapter of the NCCJ, a dude named Paul Head, led community pushback that got the Ace Carter show canceled in 1955. So, after about two and a half years on the air, this faith interfaith group um, was able to get him canceled because, like I said, mainstream Alabama was like, this is a little much. Uh, and so, but however, if you're Ace Carter, <coughs> if you're already paranoid about a Jewish conspiracy controlling the world, a pro-Jewish organization getting you fired doesn't help your worldview. You know, some people could just call it cause and effect, yeah. but, you know. Yeah. Taking a simple step back and having common sense makes this all make sense, but to him, this is just proof that, that, that the Jews were out to, to get him. Oh, God, it's just culture wars. Ugh. So he only got worse after he lost his, his wider audience because now he's less mainstream, so he's he can really... Now, he's, now he, he's just focused in on QAnon. Yeah, he can speak to a very specific crowd. It's exactly the kind of people who would jump on board with QAnon all these decades later. Now, it, or where was I? Yeah, he only got worse, and it made mainstream segregationists such as the Alabama Citizens Council to push him aside. Now, every southern state at the time, had one of these state citizens councils. And in case you didn't know what those were, they were pro-segregation. They, they might as well be called the white citizens council. These were just, these were, you know, influencing local government and trying to influence elections and policies and even local businesses to make them all white-friendly and keep things the way these particular people wanted them. And even they were like, yeah, we're cool with the anti-integration stuff, but... We do not want this anti-Semitic asshole in our group. He's too racist for us. So in 1956, a very busy year for our boy, he founded his own uh, called the North Alabama Citizens Council. So it was a sp safe space for hate against both black and Jewish Americans. Oh. Oh, good. And it, so it splintered the membership between the moderate and extreme racists in the area. So like the kind of more mainstream people... They had their own place to hang out. Yeah, we had your, your your mainstream racist club, and then you had this super racist club. Well, you know, they didn't have the internet, so they couldn't just hate people anonymously yeah, you, online. You couldn't just go to 4chan. You just couldn't just go to 4chan or 8chan or whatever chan it is now and, and get your porn and hate. Not even just porn, but like, no. Ugh, yeah. No. I've okay. never been there. Don't want to be there. I know too much about it. It makes my brain hurt. Yeah, um, don't come. Um, so not only so he founded the Super Racist Club, but that wasn't quite enough, so he started his own chapter of the KKK. He dressed them in gray robes, uh, you know, like a rebel soldier's uniform, and called them the Ku Klux Klan of the Confederacy. So, and the soldier reference wasn't just for show. The idea was this was going to be a real, like, paramilitary group that was going to do some shit. Oh, so they weren't just, like, people hanging out in bedsheets sharing their hate. They yeah, actually and wanted not to just be terrorists. They, they wanted to actually be terrorists, 100%. That was the goal from the beginning. Um, so here are a few examples, even though Carter wasn't directly involved, but he's literally the founder and leader. So he's responsible, in my opinion, for all of this. 
In April of 1956, members of the Grey Clan rushed the stage of a Nat King Cole concert and attacked the performer during his third song of the evening. They attacked Nat? They attacked Nat King Cole. Fuck those guys. Fuck those guys so hard. Now, it was not just because Cole was black, but Ace Carter and his cronies believed that rock and other kinds of popular music were part of this communist plot to encourage race mixing. Because once again, you know, rock and roll was stolen from black culture and even in it, but at the same time, anybody who was cutting edge would go to, to see some of these black performers and their venues. And it was one of the earliest places where especially young people would be mixed race because they were all just enjoying the music. Yeah. And Nat King Cole was part of a big touring production. It wasn't just him. He was part of this huge tour going on at the time. So this is all part of the commie plot for race mixing. Um, as described in the Organization of American Historians Magazine and History, a really obnoxious title. You shouldn't have historians in history in the same title. I object to this. Um, quote, Cole was midway through his third song of the evening, the romantic ballad Little Girl. Three of the men vaulted the, the footlights, and one, Kenneth Adams, grabbed the startled singer, who was hit in the face by a falling microphone, and wrestled Cole over his piano stool onto the floor. Unquote. Yeah, so God, just, should they jump over the lights? People don't know what's going on. There's one who just grabs Nat King Cole, takes him down to the floor, starts beating the shit out of him. Fucking terrible! Continuing. Quote, Plainclothes policemen, alerted to the possibility of trouble at the concert, rushed to rescue the singers, only to clash with uniformed cops who thought they were a second wave of attack. So the cops are beating <laughs> the shit out of each other because they don't know who they are. <laughs> because they wanted to take down hard rock and roll or nagging well, so no, in this case, the cops were all trying to yeah, protect him. They just, Cole, however. The uniform cops didn't know that undercover, the plainclothes guys were there. So they both just start beating the shit out of each other. Um, back to the quote. As the curtain fell and Cole was rescued, the Ted Heath yes. Orchestra, a British band touring with Cole, stayed at its post and launched into God Save the Queen. That's hilarious, but they should have, yeah, because this is before the Benny Hill music. That would have been so great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you look at that scene played in your head, Booty Hill music is playing. Yeah, it's a real shame <laughs> that nobody was doing a live, like, you know, wasn't didn't have a movie camera there to record it. There are some pictures of the events and then some of the dudes after the arrests. Now, uh, the guy I mentioned earlier, Kenneth Adams, the one who actually was swinging at Nat King Cole, um, this guy is suspected of both burning a bus carrying Freedom Riders, which, if you remember from the George Wallace episode, they were like a a protest group that would ride mixed race, um, go to different cities for protests and stuff like that. Um, and the, anyway, he was also suspected of the murder of a man named Willie Brewster. Yeah, fuck this guy. Don't like him. Um, don't worry, Nat King Cole was fine, though. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Nat King Cole has been dead for ages, and they still dig him up every once in a while to sing with him. They'll just dig up old Nat King Cole tracks. He was great, people actually. People will, will, like, I really just want to do a two-hour with Nat King I listened Cole. to the song Little Girl. Maybe I'll put a, maybe that's what we'll write out on at the end of the episode, because why not? Okay, well, yeah. I mean, which, by the way, musical artist, the only one who should be able to do that is his daughter, Natalie, and that is it. Everyone else should just leave him alone. Let him He's be gone. Let him be dead. He can't do a duet with you. It's no longer his choice. You're just raving his memory. But yeah, that song, Little Girl, that also showed off what a badass he was in the piano. He was, like, standing up and playing in ways I never could at my best. Um, another horrific crime committed by the KKK of the Confederacy was the abduction and mutilation of a man named Edward Aaron. Develop he was a developmentally disabled black man, which makes it even worse. Fucking hate it. So, 
It was said that the original plan was to, quote, pick up a Negro to scare the hell out of, unquote, which was bad enough, but it went much farther than fear. Quoting Glenn Eskew, quote, They asked Aaron if he wanted to die or lose his genitals, to which the African-American responded, neither, but then chose emasculation. Although Aaron informed his captors he did not belong to the civil rights movement, the Klansmen told him to tell Negro leaders that the same thing would happen to them if they attempted to enroll the Negro children in white schools. The robed sextet then forced him to strip from below the waist and lie on the dirt floor. Unquote. And it only gets worse. So these were six, these were six members, um, and then one of them, a piece of shit named Bart Floyd, used a razor to remove Aaron's genitals. They then poured turpentine on his wounds as an intended torture, but it possibly saved his life because it slowed down the bleeding. In an interview after the fact, Aaron stated, I don't think they're human. Yeah, me neither. These are fucking monsters. Uh, Fortunately, the victim was discovered by police and taken to the hospital before he bled to death. One of the few times you can be grateful for Alabama cops at this time, but they did. They found this guy... You know, bleeding and screaming and crying and got him to the hospital. And I watched an interview he gave to local news where he uh, he asked to be filmed from behind because he was ashamed. He'd been mm-hmm. made a eunuch by these people. And oh, that's just so just terrible. fucking awful. And just listening to him, he was like, you know, he, he was just like a, a guy in his 30s, just maybe a little slow. Kind of on, you know, the Forrest Gump end of the of things. So it's, it's fucked up. Yeah, I mean... That's horrific. I, I mean, and even if he wasn't mentally challenged, that's still fucked no, up. There's it's horrific. There's not no, okay. nothing where that... There's no good version. That's just like, you know, that's the whipped cream of the of the atrocity Sunday. But don't worry, there's a there's some sprinkles on top. This is really going to piss you off. Oh, goody. Is there a cherry, too? Yeah. As a footnote, um, so two of the men decided to cooperate with prosecutors and turn state's evidence... So they get reduced sentences. So there's six guys, two of them, two of them rat out the other four. And so they get charged, they get sentenced to only five years for their guilty pleas. Um, the other four were convicted and sentenced to 20 years apiece in state prison. Hooray! Then George Wallace became governor of Alabama, and he pardoned those four, but left the two who cooperated with the state right where they were. Fuck George Wallace. Fucking hate him so much. Every time we think we've heard the last shitty thing he did, no. there's always more. No, there's there's a well of just awfulness there. I'm sure that even in future episodes where we don't we're nowhere near Alabama, he's just gonna pop back up again like a fucking. I bad mean, the penny. fact that it's like we want to act like this is such ancient history, and it's like my parents remember yeah. the shit. Oh, well, both of our parents were alive. This is all going yeah. on. This is. Uh, yeah, this was 1956. All right, so, uh, yeah, George Wallace sucks. Go listen to our three-part epic if you really want to find out how much. Now, next year, the Gray KK sent a mob to beat civil rights leader Fred Shuttleworth, whose wife was stabbed. So that's how shitty these people were. They not only went to go after this dude, they literally they stabbed him. They literally just stabbed him. Stabbed his wife. his wife in the hip. And one of those attackers went on to be involved in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church that we talked about where those four little girls were killed. So these are literally the worst no, people sir. on. Don't like it. These are the worst of the worst. Like literal fucking terrorists. They're fucking terrorists. He likely organized the mob stoning of a woman named Authorine Lucy, who was the very first African American student to attend the University of Alabama. So like this was um 
So this was before the infor the federally enforced. This was uh, one young woman who was actually she, I think she was even uh, I think she's going to grad school at this point. So this is a woman who already had a degree. She was trying to get in. She was able to get in thanks to the sponsorship of certain people on the faculty. And uh, and so the Gray KK literally organized a mob um, where they had like somewhere close to a thousand people throwing rocks at the car as this dean tries to shuttle this poor woman around campus in between classes to to protect her. There was more. It was during this uh, quite busy year he co-founded a racist broadsheet titled The Southerner to keep the message of hate strong. It pushed pseudoscientific trash to justify discrimination and segregation mostly recycling old material. So you're just taking articles and stuff he'd already written for his radio program and just rehashing it out into this like little tabloid newspaper he was publishing. Uh, the racist rag cautioned against internationalism with the same terrified anger that Alex Jones uses when talking about globalists. I was about to say, I mean, if, if it, it's just the same thing. And once again, anytime you hear globalists or internationalism, that's all code words for the Jews who secretly control the the, the, world? the shadow world government that these people believe in. Well, I mean, but these are also people that don't believe in, you know... So I, I don't even have enough words to articulate how much I think these people suck. Yeah. It's, it's really sad. It's very frustrating. So then uh, Ace Carter ran for local police commissioner and lost. Yay! Now, also, once again, still 1956. This is, his, this is a really big year. Um, he traveled to Clinton, Tennessee to oppose the integration of a local high school. There was no violence or issues inside the school. Everything actually went pretty smooth. But Carter and his folks drove around in a car, unironically flying both the Confederate and American flags. And the letters KKK were emblazoned on the doors. They were honking their horns and screaming at the top of their lungs. And they distributed protest signs and encouraged people to attend anti-integration rallies in the evening. Here is a quote from one of Ace's speeches. Quote, In the South, we have 98% Anglo-Saxon race, not counting the N-word. These are responsible people who erect free governments and who have stood up and told the N-word that you must cooperate, that you must conduct yourself from a separate station. But the communist says, one world government, one world economy, and one world race. Well, I mean, we all live here. So... I mean, I'm not necessarily for, I think we could all just be cool. <laughs> but you'll see again the, 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 the same thread that Wallace of tying, of tying the idea of letting black people use the same water fountain is, yeah, is I mean, communism. It's, it's, it's all, and you know, it's so sad because it just makes me flash to now and it's all the same fucking rhetoric. Yeah, it's just now... They just have different forms. They just changed the terminology and tried to cloak the racism behind a couple more layers. So you have to peel them back to actually find it. But that's what we're here for. It's always there. So, uh, in 1957, things got even crazier and almost sent Ace to prison. Now, a patrol officer in Birmingham was checking out lights in a closed restaurant where the Grey KK was holding a meeting that evening in the theater next door. Things got quite interesting. From an interview with Dan Carter... Quote, there were rumors that Carter was stealing from the coffers and one of the members demanded to have an independent accounting of the funds. And although it's a little unclear as to how it happened, apparently Carter pulled out his long barrel forty-four and began shooting. 
quote. So literally, these guys are saying, uh, so it's like, Ace, we think you're, you're skimming from the till there, buddy. Can we just have somebody look and just double check the books? His immediate reaction is to pull his pistol out and start shooting these guys. And that could have been the end of him right here and there. Like, like if he'd have killed somebody, that probably would have been it. But luckily, or unluckily... Nobody died. Probably, yeah, let, probably unluckily, considering who we're talking <laughs> about. I don't, I don't think anybody would miss these stains. Um, so Ace was arrested, jailed, and prosecuted. But ultimately, the Jefferson County District Attorney wimped out and dropped the charges rather than risk an incident with white nationalists. They're like, um, we don't want the kind of heat this might bring. So they, they let him go. And in 1958, the very next year, he quit his own clan group after dodging those legal troubles and ran for lieutenant governor of Alabama and lost. Badly. Yay. Now, at this point, he was completely outside acceptable social circles and his reputation was trash. He was thought of as the guy who shot at racists for not being racist enough. Well, it wasn't just his reputation that was trash. So there's that. This man is pure garbage. He retreated back to his family home in northeast Alabama and took menial jobs for a few years. So he got knocked back so hard by his bullshit that he was basically back to milking cows. But you can't keep a good racist down. Because someone appeared on the political stage to inspire Asa to make his comeback. <laughs> someone who could inspire the heart of a diehard Alabama segregationist. Bambi, it's your hero and mine. Friend <laughs> of the pod, George Corley Wallace. Uh... I don't want him to be a friend of mine, ever. That's, that's more like just having herpes. You don't want it. It's well, just not going away. Yeah. Well, remember, sadly, Wallace is directly Every connected. Every once in a while, you think you're cool, you've been in remission for a while, and all of a sudden you have a George Wallace flare-up, and, and it's just... Yeah, well, remember, on the off. Kevin Bacon scale, we are only two degrees from George Wallace, thanks to our lovely family history, so... We might as well at least understand what it all means. So, inspired by Wallace's message, which, once again, if you haven't heard our three-part series, I talked about it at great length and mental damage to my poor sister, um, Asa wrote up several sample speeches and just walked right up to the fighting little judge outside of a courthouse and just handed them over, saying, I wrote you some speeches, you should check them out. And, and the rumor has it that Wallace did read through them and used one that very night. And a disgusting partnership was born. Asa wrote speeches for both George and Lurleen Wallace during their respective governor's races. Uh, and as we mentioned up top, he wrote the infamous Segregation Forever inaugural address. I hate it. It's just, it's just not good. Now, as a writer, I was kind of interested in just like what his process was. So, uh, quoting Dan Carter once more. Quote, after locking himself alone in his room, he would take his typewriter, a couple of cartons of cigarettes, and maybe a little whiskey as well. He would get sort of wound up. He would get on this kind of riding high. Unquote. So he'd stay up drinking whiskey and chain-smoking Paul Malls and get all angry and sweaty and poured his insecure white frustrations onto the page. Okay. I will keep that in mind when <laughs> researching. <laughs> Just this sweaty. Although, although I, I, I don't get, I don't do the sweaty. Although I have to say, there's so much in my research that just makes me mad. It does make me perpetually angry. So I at least get that part of the writing. If you do the right, just the right amount of drinking and smoking, it really can be the right zone to write in. I can tell you this from experience. So Wallace spoke the words, and we kind of know how that story turned out. Wallace won and was sworn in on a cold January morning, 59 years ago. 
And Asa kept up the good-paying, steady job for years with only one problem. George Wallace never publicly admitted to working with Carter, and in fact denied it for the entirety of his life. It was brought up even, like, on, you know, last years of his life, and he's that, still... That tracks. Yeah, no, because he was, you know, for all of the bullshit about his being reformed, he continued to lie to whitewash his past up until his death. So, fuck George Wallace. Um, we only know about Carter's involvement because multiple Wallace staff opened up over the years and sang like canaries. The writer got all his money in cash payments under the table. So people donating to the Wallace campaign did not know they were directly paying Ace, the Ace Carter to write this shit. A terrorist fucking monster. Yeah. Who sent goons after Nat King Cole. But as Wallace shifted gears for his first run for president in 1968, he felt that Ace Carter was a liability. So the speechwriter... <laughs> don't say! Yeah. Suddenly, like when, when he's ready to, to be more mainstream for the national stage... This guy is like an anchor around his neck, and he needs to go. So uh, the speechwriter was quietly cut loose. Everyone was told to stop returning Ace's calls. And I'm sure you can imagine that our hero took this in stride and resolved to change his ways and become a better person. Probably not. Correct. Um, I'm sorry to report that the grapes were quite sour. Ace Carter was pissed, feeling he alone represented the true calling of white supremacy, and he ran for governor of Alabama against Wallace in 1970. Huh. Okay, so the one-time Wallace is a better option, question mark? Well, it's hard to say, because remember, that was the, the one, the campaign that was d deemed the most racist <laughs> governor campaign mm -hmm. in the history of America. And yet, and this will tell you something, mm -hmm. because even still, Asa, Ace Carter ran on a more racist platform and lost by a lot. So George Wallace found the sweet spot mm -hmm. level of racism, of racism to appeal to the Alabama, the, the white... We don't want to actively kill them. We just don't want to be in the same public spaces. Yeah. But, let's, like I said, this was 1970, so we're at the very end of that being okay, even in, in Alabama. Out of the five candidates on the Democratic side, Ace finished dead last with only 1.51% of the vote, as Wallace squeaked out a victory against Albert Brewer. In a television interview, Ace said this of his feelings about George Wallace. Quote, I wouldn't say I turned against George. He left the cause, so he left me when he did. He accepted integration in schools, and of course, we can't have that. Unquote. So Wallace is a traitor because he he ultimately folded on the integration issue. Because he had to. He didn't want to go to jail. Because he and had And he to. wanted to win, but more importantly to Wallace, he wanted to be president of the United States. Real, real sad that that didn't work out for him, and he got shot instead. So... Because uh, which is worse, yeah. him or Nixon? And when you really look at all the fucking horrific things that are happening to this day because of fucking stupid ass Richard Nixon, I don't know. And yet he I don't know which one of them. And yet he also there. created the EPA. I hate literally everything. Although I have to say, this asshole would have never been able to do this now. Yeah. Like, the internet remembers everything. Oh, yeah, and he already starts to suffer from a, a world that's increasingly more connected and, and has a mass media. So, in, at the 1971 Wallace inauguration, black students marched in a celebratory parade, which was a sign of the changing times. Meanwhile, Ace Carter and a group of supporters protested, holding up signs that said things including, Wallace is a bigot, and white children are being destroyed in the schools. 
A friend reported that Ace cried once out of sight, lamenting that Wallace had sold out, and perhaps realizing that, regardless of how he felt, the war to preserve segregation was officially over. Hooray! Because Wallace literally had, like, the, the marching band had black students, you know, cheering for Wallace. So that's progress. Which is weird, but okay. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, it honestly is a good thing. There was a sign. So I'm not going to bitch about that, but just, just the, the optics are still a little fucked up. So this, this thing with the, where he had his little, his little assholes with the signs and go off and cries in a corner, that was the last public appearance of Ace Carter. Hooray! So this is the point where he realizes, I got, this ain't working anymore. It's time to reinvent myself. So Asa Carter sold the his... the weirdest way ever. Oh, well, yeah, we're about to get into that part. So Asa Carter sold his farm and moved his family to Sweetwater, Texas. Texas? And spent some time in 1973 in St. George's Island, Florida. He focused on writing, this time fiction. He chose for his pen name Bedford Forrest Carter, named, of course, after Nathan Bedford Forrest, Confederate general and first grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. So, in case people want to say, oh, he was, this was him reforming himself, he literally took his pen name after the, the founder of the fucking KKK. I don't think he's moved very far in his opinions. Forrest grew a mustache, got a tan, and started dressing like a cowboy. He started calling his own sons nephews and began to bullshit everyone he met about his past. But he did take the writing seriously and sold his first novel, The Rebel Outlaw Josie Wales. Now, this was a first, basically, a self-published book. Like, he found this little outlet where he had to pay in in order to get the book printed and stuff. And so he was, like, selling out of the back of his car, taking it to bookstores, mailing it to people. And, and it worked. He was able to, through this route, get it picked up by a larger publisher. I hate that he became successful. Yeah. There's nothing about the story that I don't absolutely hate to my core. Now... I don't know if you know anything about the story of uh, the, the outlaw Josie Wales, but it very much is sort of this symbolic um, telling of Ace Carter's own story because Josie Wales is literally called the rebel outlaw. He was a Southerner who refused to accept the, um, the Reconstruction era South, and so he flees west to Texas and ends up, you know, becoming an outlaw, getting all this trouble, but in the end he manages to kind of like start a new life for himself away uh, from this society that moved away from his values. So you can sort of say this is like this heroic retelling in his brain, like this self-mythologizing. He is the Clint Eastwood in this story. Now I don't... All of this makes me sad. Keep going. Oh, no, you're going to... This just... Yeah. You tainted Clint Eastwood. I mean, not that... I mean, that's not hard, but... Yeah. It's not really at all, but yeah. Um, yeah, an editor I used to work with wrote a biography on Clint Eastwood. Yeah, it's he, all problematic. He was a piece of shit, and we're actually going to talk a few things about that here. Um, now, Robert Daly was a producer working with Clint Eastwood in the 70s, and this was a guy with an eye for material to adapt to the screen. He found an unsolicited copy of Josie Wales just in the slush pile of stuff coming into the office uh, that was sent in by Carter, and he just, he, he was kind of like, looks interesting, so after dinner he grabbed the book, decided to read the first few chapters, and... Ended up, he thought it was a page turner. I mean, I haven't read it, but apparently it's a pretty good Western if you like that sort of if thing. If you like that sort of thing. And so he, he literally, like late at night, called Clint Eastwood to, to discuss it, who took his call because he's like, well, damn, if, if Robert's calling me in the middle of the night about this book, it must be pretty cool. 
So a typical option to adapt a novel to the screen in the like early 70s was about five grand. Forrest Carter got five times that much with his very first book with the promise of much more cash to come. So this is the beginning uh, of his like financial success as an author. So here he is on that verge of breaking out and you get the sense that Forrest suddenly became really afraid of his past screwing things up for him. So in the spring of 1974, Asa Carter reappeared in Alabama and went into the field office of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. From the documentary, The Reconstruction of Asa Carter, quote, Carter tells the agent that he's about to leave Alabama, and if they ever need to reach him for any reason, he gives them two phone numbers. And the FBI agent asks, well, why would we want to contact you, Ace? And he says, well, I think I'm going to stop making some money for the first time in my life, and I don't want anything to screw it up. He had the foresight to know what an FBI agent sniffing around might mean to his career. It would be the last entry in an FBI file that stretched over a thousand pages. Unquote. So this guy, as a terrorist, has a fucking file this thick. An encyclopedia file. And his last one's like, look, if you guys need anything, I'm available. Just, just don't go talking to people. You contact me through these numbers. Because he really, really wanted to sell this Forrest Carter is a real person thing. Because there's one thing to be a book author back then, because you can be a successful author and still be pretty much anonymous. But the moment movies and like mainstream media get involved, that's when like people start paying more attention to you. So the original director was a guy named Philip Kaufman, and he wanted to make changes to the script to downplay what he felt were fascist overtones. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Be like, you know. And in fact, he had such a problem with it and the fact that there was pushback and they wouldn't, didn't want him to change the script that he quit the project over creative differences. Good for you, dude. But you know who doesn't mind fascist overtones a little bit? Clint fucking Eastwood, that's who. If you need a fascist movie or someone to yell at an empty chair for an hour, you just call Clint. <sighs> So he took over directing as well as starring in the film. That tracks. And again, I've seen the movie, even though it's been a while. I remember liking it. I mean, it seems like a fun Western. I'd have to watch it again with my more adult and educated lens to, to kind of see the stuff they're talking about. I just have vague memories of it. Clint Eastwood shoots a bunch of people. No. You know what I've learned recently about nostalgia? Is that it sucks. Yeah. Don't do it. It's like, you know, how much looking back do we really, really need? Yeah, I think the, the word nostalgia literally comes from a root word which means an old wound. Yeah. So it's, it's actually yeah. a damaging in many, many ways. I mean... Or at the very least, just being exploited to sell us back our childhood, which we're living through right now. You know, it's like, I still love The Wizard of Oz, even though I know that... Everyone in it was basically tortured in order to make that film. <laughs> and it's like, well, you got tortured for something, Judy Garland. The, ori the original Tin Man nearly movie. died. <laughs> he did, and he didn't even get to be in the film. He didn't get any money for it. He just literally gave him cancer and he almost died. Womp, womp, womp. Now, during the press tour for Josie Wales, Forrest Carter gave an interview to Barbara Walters on the Today Show instantly causing many folks in Alabama to fall out of their chairs as the Ace Carter they knew spewed obvious bullshit on national television. This led to some sniffing around, and on August 26, 1976, 
the New York Times published an uncredited piece titled, Is Forrest Carter Really Asa Carter? Only Josie Wales may know for sure. <laughs> the piece lays out the evidence that the racist and the cowboy author were one and the same, including the fact that the novel had a copyright application with the same address in Oxford, Alabama, used by Asa Carter. So it's like a slam dunk. Yeah. They're the same fucking it's... guy. Plus, look at a picture of this one and the one with the mustache and the hat. Yeah. They're the same guy. <laughs> You don't have to have facial recognition in order to uh, have some it, facial yeah. recognition. So from no this software involved. from this New York Times piece, quote, but Forrest Carter says it isn't so. He says that he is no politician, but both a cowboy and an Indian, and that his next book, The Education of Little Tree, will tell about his own Indian childhood in the household of his grandfather, half Cherokee, and his grandmother, full Cherokee, unquote. And speaking of shameless cultural appropriation... At the same time Forrest Carter was dodging allegations of his racist past, his most beloved work was released. The Education of Little Tree was first published to modest success, but as we discussed before, it went on to have waves of bestseller status, and to this day, many adults consider it one of their beloved children's books. It means a lot to a lot of people. I mean, that's kind of why Oprah picked it, even after the book had been out for a long time. Because people read it and, and were touched. It's all bullshit and lies, children. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, um, now granted, if you just publish it as fiction, yeah, but yeah, not a big deal. That's the thing. It was published as a memoir in the nonfiction section, supposedly as Forrest Carter's memory of life with his Cherokee grandparents. The, now, the book, at the very beginning of the book, it declared the author the storyteller in council to the Cherokee Nation. But weirdly, the publisher didn't contact the Cherokee Nation to verify this. The memoir, finger quotes, intentional, not only included completely fictional events and people, it included straight-up bullshit. So, like, made-up Cherokee words, made-up Cherokee customs, completely inaccurately described what people, you know, of this culture would be doing and wearing in, at this time. So, for example, in the book, the grandparents have young little tree wearing buckskins, something not typically seen in Cherokee living in the 1920s, who are wearing mostly just normal clothes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's. But remember, this is the 1970s, and he was this. This was this was romanticizing it for this like hippie audience that you know our parents, the boomer hippies who are putting feathers oh, in their know. hair and adopting all this Native this American a, yeah, New Age shit. I mean, this is almost to the day, two years before I was born. Because yeah, this is this period where where um, Native Americans began to be kind of weirdly romanticized, even as we still treated them like dog shit but this is where like you know remember the old psa with the crying yes, Indian, the fucking which crying that Indian. dude was an italian so yeah this is just so this is just typical of this period because once again it's just trying to weaponize this sort of like weird feeling we had because there's all these books like the last of the mohicans there's all these stories that kind of tried to rehabilitate the image and romanticize and you know this idea of the noble savage and their this sort of lost cause and we sort of almost feel bad about everything we did to them and continue to do to them and impress them. All oh, while we yeah. talk about how great they are because they, you know, they're in touch with nature and have these wise ways and stuff. Instead of treating them like real people, instead they're once again just made into a monolith. It's just, it's all it's bad weird. And bullshit. But it's like, it's so, weird. so it's like, this is not directly attacking them, but instead just using them for, for his own gain, which is again, sucks. I mean, to me, that's the truth. And very American. 
like cultural appropriation is something I have my own mixed feelings about because sometimes I think it's overused. I mean, there's yeah. culture blends and crosses over and like not there, there's some things that are attacked, I think aren't so harmful, but with this a hundred percent is, it's like, I, I'm going to just make up shit about another culture, dress up and tell a fake story to sell books. That's, that is, which would be <laughs> fine if you sold it as fiction. Correct. So, while Forrest's career as an author was taking off, his personal life was a shit show. Uh, he separated from his wife, who stayed in Florida, and moved to Abilene, Texas, and was working on a Little Tree sequel. He was well-liked and known for being a good friend and an engaging dinner guest. But sometimes, when he had a little bit too much whiskey, he'd mutter, unfortunately, racial slurs under his breath or say something terrible that people had to apologize for. Because, once again, I don't think, I think he's hiding his racism. He didn't change his ways. Like, he never once addressed any of it. That tracks. So, a Yeah, I know, I know certain other people from Alabama who do that, too. They just never happened. Don't want to discuss let's it. Not, let's not talk about any of that. So, Asa Earl Forrest Bumblebee Carter only lived to the age of 53. And his death is just as weird and ugly as the rest of his life. Yay, he's dead. The details are sketchy, but one thing the stories all agree on. He was visiting his son in Potosi, Texas, when they got into some kind of argument, and the younger Carter punched his old man square in the face. He, <laughs> he punched his old man to death. He punched him <laughs> in the face one time, and he decides. So, most of the reports state that Asa <laughs> Carter had a heart attack on the scene and died. Others say he hit on his head on the way down to the floor and died choking on his own vomit. Either way, he's dead. Yay! We got there. You know... The only thing I can say about this story is I'm really glad it wasn't three parts. No, this one, I, I couldn't <laughs> do that to you. Plus, there really wasn't enough meat in this one to really justify a multi-part episode. Um, a man named Howard White reflected on his friendship with Asa Carter in his later years, saying, quote, Ace was one of the most complex people I've ever known, and you wonder if anyone really knew him. Sometimes I wonder if he really knew himself, unquote. You know who knew him? fucking wife India that bitch knew him she knew what a piece of shit he was from start to finish guaranteed even if she loved him and and was all good with it she knew yeah now she it, it took her a really long time after his death to finally uh, admit to the press because every once in a while it comes mm -hmm. so she for years she denied that that uh Forrest and Asa Carter were the same person but eventually she didn't care anymore you got anyway. me and she lived, uh, I think she lived sometime into the 1990s. So she lived, just like his own mother, his, his wife li outlived him by decades. And that's it. We did it. Another dead racist in the books here at Chainsaw History. They're dead. Hooray. Huzzah. Don't we, aren't we glad things are all better now? Oh, well, I will say this. The education of Little Tree has been now reclassified uh, as fiction and Oprah took it off of her book list. Well, that's good. And basically just said, I didn't know. I just thought it was a nice book. You know, which is fair enough. I mean, which is fair. She certainly wasn't the only one fooled. And most people were. Unless yeah. you happen to be Cherokee. Yeah. And again, it's it's like the whole, the, that's very scandalous. But it's only scandalous because it's, why wouldn't you just put it as a fiction book? It almost, does it need to be a biography? I, I think he thought it needed to be to sell the story. But, you know, it's hard to say. You know, in the end, he, he died early in his career. So he never even had, I guess, 
we'll never know that if he'd lived longer, if he would have confronted his change of ways, if his other books would have, who knows. Either way, uh, not, I'm glad he's dead. not too it. sorry that this guy is dead. I mean, like I said, actual fucking terrorist. That's what I wasn't expecting. I kind of knew he was a racist piece of shit going into this. I had no idea the extent. I was like, my eyebrows went really wide. And I was like, I think I need to talk about this. When he assaulted Nat King Cole, that's probably the linchpin. That, well, story. that definitely was the what the <laughs> fuck moment. It's like, yeah, I need to tell this to somebody because I'd never heard that before. Well... This is our first new recording in quite a while, but we've got new episodes on the way soon. I keep hinting about this one guy I'm going to talk about, and I keep putting it off, but I think I'm going to start that script soon. Until then, you can uh, visit our Patreon at ChainsawHistory.com. You can visit my website at JamieChambers.net or my Twitter account, which is at Jamie1KM. And you can, good luck finding Bambi in the internet. I don't live or play there. It's fine. Even though I will sometimes tag her in pictures. That's that's all you get. Ooh! While we're on the... It just This is a complete change of topic, but and I'm almost thinking about um, putting it as my profile pic for a while. Aaron got me a Barbie doll to commemorate our po first podcast, so I... Because I collect Barbie dolls, now am the owner of George Washington Barbie. You got George Washington Barbie. She's dressed in hot pink. It's fabulous. So am I going to have to get George Wallace Barbie made for you? <laughs> Under absolutely no circumstances. If we I get enough patrons where we start having more money than we know it to spend, I promise you I will make this happen. No thanks. I don't know. No. I mean, I have Barbie and Ken in some, some really weird situations, but I definitely... I mean, I'm really cool with George Washington Barbie. A George Wallace Barbie would make me very sad. Then we can do I'm a, sure what, as it would the people of... We can work our way through and do a Frances Perkins Barbie next, which would be fun. I would love a Frances Perkins, you know, an She's Eleanor frumpy, Roosevelt doll. frumpy Barbie. She doesn't have to. She could, yeah, it'd be like Barbie and her skeptical, big old glasses yeah. trying to hide her face. Yeah, Frances Perkins dressed like an old lady when she was 20 years old. Now, um... I have Eliza Doolittle, Barbie. We have a tradition of uh, talking about recommended charitable donations. And considering the way that Asa Carter appropriated a Cherokee identity for his personal profit, I say give a direct donation to the Cherokee Nation or another organization to help indigenous people of America. So if you check the show notes, I will have a couple of links up along those lines. Um, I actually just... The only link I want to put up is for a suicide hotline. Um, there's just, it's going around right now. So take care of yourselves, take care of each other. And if anyone needs it, we'll have that 1-800 number up on our site too. Yeah. And if anyone's, you know, if you're feeling that way, feeling especially sad, lonely, if you're thinking at all about hurting yourself, yeah, call the, call the hotline or talk to someone you trust. Don't try to wrestle with all this stuff alone. Yeah, the world is terrible and, you know, get help when you need it. So, take care of you. Indeed. And, on that note, I think we're going to call it another one in the books. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hooray! Thanks, bye! Little 
girl You're the one girl for me, little girl You're as sweet as can be With your glance you brought me Love from the start Oh, what a thrill came into my heart Little girl, with your cute little ways I'm yours for the rest of my days And this great big world 